Welcome to another week in the Relief Valve Podcast, my friends. We are two weeks out from the election here in the good old U.S. of A., and I hope that each and every one of you are getting your plan together to safely vote. Now, mostly I try to keep politics out of this podcast, but today I'm going to make a little bit of an exception. I, I promise it'll be brief and it'll be painless. So I hope you'll stay with me because my guest is a fantastic lady that does great things and is worth taking the time to listen to. Okay, first off, in normal times, I would tell you, I don't care who you vote for. Just make sure you vote. And as much as this year, I really do care who you vote for, I'm still going to say it. Because I sincerely believe that you having a right to vote as you choose without risk of disenfranchisement, is the cornerstone of a modern civilization. Not everybody out there in our leadership feels the same. The stock market is not the economy. We can have a whole discussion about that later on. You can dramatically reduce the spread of the coronavirus by just wearing a damn mask. And anyone who tells you otherwise is flat out lying to you. Yeah, it's an inconvenience. You know what? Many things in life are inconvenient. Get over it. The sooner we get rid of this thing, the sooner we get to go back out of our houses and have normal lives again. We can't have a society or civilization, for that matter, if we don't at least try to get along. It's okay to differ in our beliefs, but if you give in to the hate, which is being used to manipulate you, then the game is over. And make no mistake, friends, when you give in to the hate, you are being manipulated. And... Lastly, and this is really important to me, if some asshat shows up at your polls garnishing an automatic weapon designed to intimidate you, be a patriot. Say, excuse me, sir, and walk by them. Be good to each other, and above all else, vote. Because this year, our lives really do depend on it. Jen Lee Reeves is co-founder and executive director of Born Just Right, which evolved from her experience as a parent and led her to work as an ally in the disability community. When she isn't working for Born Just Right, she's a digital director at the University of Missouri and a training consultant. She's an alumna of the social strategy team at AARP in Washington, D.C., and also spent years as a television news producer. Jen taught digital journalism at the Missouri School of Journalism while managing an NBC affiliate newsroom. To relax, Jen loves to travel with her family of four, including her husband Randy. Take photos of the beauty around her and enjoy music and good food. Hi Jen, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thanks Jeff, it's great to be here. So how's life uh, in the great American Midwest these days? Well, just like everything, it's a little weird. Um, I do have to say that I feel being in the Midwest is a bit of a gift and a curse at the same time. Um, it took longer for viral levels to get here. So that was, had it pro, had its pros and cons. I think, um, I think I really appreciate that I live in an environment where there's distance and I can walk and not always need to have a mask on and, 
Um, I have a, a backyard that looks at a lake, which is something I could not afford anywhere else in the country. So that's a nice. gift. Uh, but yeah, it's, I think reality is the reality that we have everywhere. I think the one thing that's maybe different is that um, it just took a little longer for the reality to hit over here. Yeah. LA has been a roller coaster from the beginning with all of this. We had the panic when it first hit, and then we went into this mode of flattening the curve, which most people didn't get uh, what flattening the curve really meant, right? For th- mm-hmm. The idea behind it was keep the hospitals from becoming overwhelmed. Right. It's not like we were ever going to stop the virus from spreading. It, right. We can't do that. Well, we can. We can wear yeah. masks. <laughs> um, and yeah, details, right? And then, of course... Um, out here, we've got um, uh, diverse opinions uh, that people <laughs> have about things. And the frustrating part about it is it, there's a common sense element that's missing <laughs> to diverse opinions. Because yeah. it's, <clears throat> you know, it's it's not about um, proving the other guy is, is a snowflake or is wrong or is the other thing. It's about if there's a virus that needs a human body to incubate in and that human body spreads it by basically spitting on each other. If we cover our mouths and noses so that we can't spit on each other, the virus has nowhere to go and it will die off. Right. I, I don't understand why for many folks this is difficult, but apparently it is. It sounds so logical when you say it yeah. that way. I don't know yeah. why. <laughs> so yeah, I live in a I live in a college town, and so at the beginning, it, the the town emptied because the campus emptied. Uh, okay, students were sent home, and campus closed. Uh, the only people that were still on campus were students who had nowhere else to go, and a certain small level of people helping them stay fed and and cared for. Uh, we have a hospital system that continued to function and uh, and function well when everything was closed and it's still doing okay. But um, we, w- our, our town's economy really relies on that university system. And so uh, okay. and we have a government, uh, a state government that has still does not require masks. We have a governor who got the virus we have and his wife, we have um um, rules have fallen on county level in the state and city level and, yeah. and, and, and household level. So uh, the, the university did reopen uh, with some pretty stringent rules, but not mandated testing. And I will have to say uh, the current state of our national government is proof that things not really the answer anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm going to interrupt for a second because, so one of the challenges of doing this particular podcast this year has been, I record these in advance, right? Because they, they aren't necessarily meant to be news-based, but the way the world is operating, there's a lot of markers in time that keep getting hit. So for the audience out there, I want you to know it's Saturday, October 3rd, when we're recording this. And it is the weekend that the president of the United States uh, was announced to have had COVID and is in the hospital now. And we're watching, uh, as a nation, the dominoes start to fall in Washington, D.C. for what I am going on record as saying is the carelessness of a national government that just doesn't want to do the right thing and is therefore now making most of the executive branch sick to the point of possibly dying. Yeah. Um, but I'm adding the time marker here because... I yeah. You know, there's, there's, I've had that happen before. I recorded six episodes before I went up on a stream with this. 
Yeah. And the very first episode I recorded because the pandemic's part of the topic of it yeah. was very time specific. And I'm like, oh my God, that was like a lifetime ago because this is 2020, <laughs> right? And every minute in 2020 a day, is a year. <laughs> so, uh, right. but this one was worth noting that that's yeah, why. It's an important note because, yeah, yeah. This, is, this is definitely a long-term impact in our society and our nation. Um, but I, I do think that... Uh, the microcosm exists. M Missouri is a microcosm of that. Yeah. And um, the way our town has had to respond to the lack of um, national and state level re reality has yeah. forced the, the um, state funded uh, land grant university to reopen. There, there's no other choice. And yeah. uh, you bring in the most cavalier age group to repopulate yes. the town, yeah. you're going to see numbers jump. And we did see numbers jump. Um, and, and now <laughs> this is the scary part because isolation and quarantining sucks and the students didn't like the experience, they just stopped getting tested. So we now are, oh. my entire town is now at risk of a community spread. So now it's real scary. And now once again, very happy. I live in a home that is by a lake, that I have space to be outside, that I can live in a house where my family can have its own rooms and be away from each other if we need. Yeah. <laughs> it is a privilege yeah. that I do not let go. I am I appreciate and acknowledge it every day. That that's that that is what I refer to when I refer to a relief valve. It's having your <laughs> own room to go hide in. My yeah. my own room is my garage. That's where I hang out all day, every day, because yeah. that's all I got. Let's. But it's great. <laughs> you <add> yep. it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's step back for a second. And uh, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about who you are? And what sure. You're so I am a strange, I think I've now decided I am a, a communications unicorn. I have always based my career and my life activities based on trying to be a good human, try to make an impact in the world. And so my first choice in my career was to be a journalist because I believe in journalism. And I believe in how information is an important part of propelling a, a, a community forward. And uh, I believe in in the impact that information can give. And in this day and age, I could not say, I, I just believe in it more. Um, but so my, my career started in journalism and in broadcast journalism, but I went into broadcast journalism because I believed it would reach the most people in the most effective way. And that's why I went into the, the world of, of journalism and, and broadcast. And in that process, I learned that I really like to lead it and not just create the content, but lead it. So I used to be a television news producer. I worked in a number of markets in California, Michigan, and then I ended up teaching how to produce newscasts. And a producer, a newscast producer is the person who thinks of the big picture. They think about the audience. They work with each individual journalist that's a part of that newscast, coordinating with the directors and the, you know, the production staff and your anchors. Yep. And I really love that process. Uh, and I, I taught it uh, at the Missouri School of Journalism for nine and a half years after I had a career in it but ahead of that. Uh, while I was teaching that, I fell into the world of podcasting, actually, is what kind of turned my career into a different direction. I, I helped podcast the world's first conference 
podcasted conference with Apple in January of 2005, which shows me that I am old. But uh, <laughs> no, the no, I'm I'm old. Which which con- which conference was that? Uh, it's it's called Educause. <laughs> is a national organization that oversees the .edu domains uh, and oh, okay. is the behind-the-scenes tech guru of, of higher ed. And uh, it's really a tremendous organization. And I was really lucky to be a part of helping higher ed understand the concept of push, that, con- that content can come to you instead of you go to it. And that whole global concept was so mind-blowing in 2005 that I went back to the Missouri School of Journalism and became a total preacher of recognizing that the tools that were emerging at that time were powerful, important, and needed to be leveraged in the world of journalism. So I became the uber social media nerd of, of the Missouri School of Journalism and probably at the University of Missouri. Okay. Uh, and I, I really believe in it still. And so I'm sad to see how some of these tools have been. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm sad to see how, how people are okay with it and, or don't pay attention to digital literacy and, and educating themselves around that, that space. But in the, at its core, I'll be honest, Jeff, I wouldn't know you without it. Like I just, I uh, you're like, ab- absolutely right. We met just, on Facebook, so I, I feel like these tools still come with goodness and the opportunity to grow community and and grow knowledge. Um, you just yeah. have to have a really important amount of of digital literacy and awareness. And so, I yeah, I think that something happens to human beings when they get behind the keyboard. For some reason, we all start to think that we we cease to exist and this persona takes over, right? It's the joke of that you see in, you've seen it in science fiction for years, and maybe that's the problem, <laughs> is that when you're online, you're, uh, you're an avatar, you're not yourself anymore. And yeah. when people let that inhibition go, all of a sudden, they become something they would never be if you were face to face, right? What's What's particularly scary to me is, you're starting to see those avatars on the street. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're, they're feeling, they're yeah. feeling empowered by this experience of being on Twitter, yelling at people all day. Mm-hmm. And so they figure, Oh good. Now I can take this out in the street because this is who I am. And it's like, is this really who you are? Or yeah. is this really who you want to be is more the right. question. Right. Right. And that's, <laughs> I, I have a very good friend who lives in town with me, who met me on Twitter. And she told me that when she and I started talking, she mentioned to her husband, is she really this nice? Is it, or is she just (laughs) fake? And she's like, you really are who you are on, on digital. And I didn't believe it was possible. And I, I do believe that I, and I have taught for years that the way you behave online is who you are. And so be you, because if you fake it, you can't make it. And I think you're right that that transition of digital to in-person, if it's, if you're faking it, long enough online, you're going to end up transitioning into your true self. And I, I yeah, you're seeing that. Yeah. Your sense of shame seems to go away. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, the, th- the things that keep us, let's be honest about it. The, the things that keep us behaving well as human beings, uh, aside from what's in our heart is not wanting to be that person, right. Or not, you know, how we want to present ourselves because that's how people react back to us. Yeah. And when there's no face and there's no, personal real personal attachment hey i got 600 friends on on uh on twitter and i know three of them 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> which is funny because a Facebook story, when I started on Facebook, I jumped in really early. As soon as it went from being a college student thing to opening up to the public, I was exploring these things. I was at CBS at the time. Then we met around that same era. And I was just exploring social media. So I joined Twitter when Twitter started up. And then I literally sat with doing nothing on my Twitter account for about 10 years <laughs> before I before I went back and looked at it again. Um, and I joined Facebook and and I actually curated my friends. So I can honestly say when I look at my list and I probably got five, six hundred people who who uh, I'm involved with on on Facebook, I have in some way, shape or form had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with every single one of them mm -hmm. because I looked at Facebook, like I, I'd look for somebody who lives in Europe because I wanted to have a pen pal <laughs> kind of person that I could communicate with. So what's it like living in Europe and where do you live and what do you do? And, and actually have a dialogue about it. And most people, I don't think do that, right? They have their, their, their close circle that they're connected to because they know them and that's how they connected. And then just a bunch of people that they're hoping to, to put something over on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I know that I was, I joined, I, <laughs> this is so nerdy. I was the one professor that could say at Mizzou, I was the first professor on Facebook at Mizzou. Um, and I, you know, for a very long time, it was not a very productive space other than me yeah. telling students, you know, you should be producing a newscast, get off Facebook. Uh, yeah. Now it's kind of just a common sidebar of activity, but uh Back back then, that just wasn't it wasn't as productive or not productive. I don't know. It was not. Yeah, it's, I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure. To be honest, unless you're using it for marketing, right? Which we do sometimes. Um, I'm not sure Facebook is ever productive. I'm not sure it there was a time. ever truly was. It was a yeah. yeah, it, yeah I don't know. It, I don't know. For me, it's always been it's been a distraction. So mm -hmm. my, my social media is sliced up into portions of my life, right? So Facebook is the general. I keep track of old friends there because there have been a couple of occasions in the last few years where it was kind of like, I don't want to deal with this anymore, so I'm going to go away. Mm -hmm. But um, I literally have friends on there from high school or or people back east who I have never seen, I haven't seen in years and years and years. And the only place we keep up is through Facebook. Um, Twitter is my political space. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll, mm -hmm. I'll say no more <laughs> because um, some will like, my political space and some won't. Um, and then LinkedIn is the business side for me, right? I use that specifically for um, cultivating business contacts and that kind of thing. And I keep them all very distinctly separate because honestly and truly, like if I'm applying for a job, I'll give them my LinkedIn, I'll give them my personal business or my personal website. I will never give anybody my Twitter or Facebook because it's really none of their business. Now, at the same time, if they want, they can go out and find it anyway. It doesn't right. really matter. I'm, I'm not hiding any of it. I'm the kind of person who I read something that really pisses me off and I spend the next half hour writing this really long, angry response and then I delete it <laughs> because because I because I stop and say, okay, you got it out of your system. You are not going to say that in the town square. You know? <laughs> And that's, and that's how it was for me. I used to try to get this across to my mom. Um, she was an 80-something-year-old lady who had to be on Facebook. And I kept trying to explain to her that what you're doing is getting up on top of a van in the middle of Times Square at noon with a bullhorn. Okay? You can't take it back. Everybody's going to hear it. And most people don't give a damn. Okay? <laughs> so 
why not curate yourself a little bit and think about what you really mean or want to say? But she was like, no, I'm just an old lady and I'm angry and I'm going to get it out of my system. I'm like, okay. Okay. Yep. And that sums up social media. I think in, in some cases it's full of angry people who, who have an opportunity to get. Yeah. Or at least Twitter. Let's say, say at least Twitter. With the last six months. Um, so my, my, my career did move to outside of higher ed for a little bit. I, I worked at, at AARP as their social media trainer. I trained from the C-suite all the way down to the volunteer level on how to use these tools. Um, that was 20, I started that in 2012. And so I, I was there for five and a half years and really got that whole entire organization to a point where everyone understood the personal and professional uses. And then I, okay. I transitioned to a, st- a strategist to help with the national, the, the digital messages from the national to all of the state level, which ARP has an office in every state, Puerto Rico and Virgin Islands. And okay. I spent a lot of time helping hone strategy and consistency. And uh, when that job ended, I took strategy and consistency back to Mizzou and ha- built a strategic communication process around social media accounts that the university had never had before. So over the last two and a half years, I've, I've been riding a very interesting wave of a national university brand and also okay. taking it into this crisis mode and in and I am now about to leave and run my own consultancy of uh, and I also have a nonprofit that I built with my daughter and that those those two elements will be my main focus starting October 15th um, but we the one thing I think I've learned a lot in the last six months managing dueling pandemics of viral viral and race, and so many different types of crisis around those two things that have led to all kinds of all kinds of things I've had to help manage. Uh, yeah. I've been seeing a, a a a cycle of emotions that churn case by case, but it, there's a consistency that I've seen, and it it always starts with a base of anger. Uh, the the yeah. first thing you respond to something catastrophic and un, unplanned is anger. And then there's sadness, and then there's acceptance. The problem is that we have so many of these things happening at the same time that the cycle of anger, sad acceptance is so constant. It's up, down, up, down, up, down, that um, I don't even know if anyone has had the time to even reflect on that cycle (laughs) because I think we all hit them. I, but because I've seen so much of it lately, I've actually caught myself in that and like, oh, I'm doing it too. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I am yeah. so angry right now. I'm going to give myself some space to get to sad before I speak. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm. I'm. I'm with you. It's. It's. It's like being on a constant adrenaline rush that you can't get off of. Yeah. The last four years, especially. I mean, it's been. I can't blame it all on Trump, but he yeah. exacerbates it mm-hmm. to such an extreme. Uh, we've been heading down this path for a while now with our our national politics and um, this the last couple of years, especially 2020, because when the pandemic dropped in, it was like, holy crap, what else? You know, Um, it's been day after day after day of I can't get away from this to the point where and and it, you know, it affects you physically as well. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I don't sleep very well anymore. It's all of that kind of stuff is stacking up. So 
I I want you to talk about the nonprofit, but before we get there, I want to talk about media being your media person, right? Yeah. How how much of pushing things forward instead of bringing them back down to a calmer state is coming from mainstream media and is so there's a part of me and I've noticed this over many years, right? Both living in LA, living in New York, that local media especially has this ability to control the rhythm of a crisis. Yes. Um, so as an example, uh, in 1992 in Los Angeles, after the Rodney King trial was over, we had riots. Yes. Um, and the riots broke out. They were very violent. Um, there are political aspects of this, uh, like the police department was kind of paramilitary at the time. And the, the chief of police kind of pulled back the police when the riots started because he was sort of sending the message of, okay, you want to see what the city looks like without strong police. But what I noticed was the media went into, you know, 24 by seven mode at that point, helicopters over the streets, looking at the fires and the fighting and everything that was going on. And this went on for three or four days until the governor finally brought in the National Guard. And when the National Guard showed up, all of a sudden, the news started to take a break. You know, they started to say, okay, National Guard's here. We can all step back. Everything's going to be fine. And, and I mean, you know, as the coverage died down, as it went from 24 by 7 constantly beating on your head, um, things quieted down. Not It helped that there were troops in the streets, I guess. But <laughs> It, there, there was a there was a definitive flow to the way the whole thing ran, and it played out on TV. Now, LA is one of those news markets where you know, hey, we put helicopters up in the air when there's a high speed chase going through the streets and runs for three hours on the local stations. So you know, we're a little uh, we're a little over the top to start with. Yeah. But what do you think about that, um, and how that's contributing to how we all feel these days? I I think. I think that national media has so many places to share its information. And I think the local media has the same. I think each person has now grown to have access to information in so many different ways that as that has grown, I think I, I mentioned before, there has mm -hmm. there is a lack of literacy, media literacy in our country, yeah. nobody is yeah. teaching the importance of check, verify, and, and yeah. double check. And, and it's actually something I preached at AARP about the importance of taking advantage of the generation that may not have to go to work, you know, nine to five, yeah. that, that they, yeah. they could be supporting the younger generation that also has more time to create content and, and, and share and post and, you know, back, back, we used to live near each other. And so the grandparents often would help with the younger generation while the, yeah. the middle generation was working. I, I really believe that there is an opportunity still for the generations to support each other, but it is more around digital literacy than actual in-person care. And I think that we really missed that opportunity and it, it could start any time, but there would have to be a true desire for a national yeah. literacy around making good choices and not just sharing. And the importance that these channels are not just new, these are a part of our yeah. daily society and that our yeah. media outlets should 
would be supporting and funding literacy and not only sharing information, but then maybe even behind the scenes, how did we gather this information? Let's help you understand what goes into us telling you our reporting, just to help guide more literacy around what journalism is versus opinion. Thank you. Thank you. You nailed it right there. You totally nailed it right there. There's so much more literacy needed because opinion is not news. Opinion is opinion. But our general society has decided that opinion is is fact. And there's such a lacking in literacy that there's no one pushing back and saying, what? That's not. Yeah. There isn't enough care for the literacy. It's, It's it's how we've started to package it. Right. I've I've said that. One of the worst things that ever happened in media was the TV show 60 Minutes was successful (laughs) because 60 Minutes was the first time that you blended entertainment and news into a single program on TV. And it started to, it it got high ratings and therefore uh, it proved that news was no longer a loss leader. It could be a profit center. All of the net when when things like the fairness doctrine and all began to drop away, and the the networks started to feel less of an obligation to paying back the citizenry for use of the airwaves. All of a sudden, news changed, right? Yeah. And I've been what my preaching to people, and I've had this conversation a lot, even is there's there's journalism and there's entertainment. Okay, you put on. MSNBC, as good as their as their people are, and as good as the information that at times they can provide is, they are entertainment. You go to in in the case of TV, I will give Lester Holt and the NBC Nightly News credit. Those guys are journalists. People who are bringing you facts without bias attached to it are journalists, because that's what a journalist does. People who are commenting on those facts are entertaining you. Yes. And an outlet like NBC has the ability to split the two, right? Because they can do nightly news on the network, and then they can have MSNBC to do their thing. But an outlet like Fox doesn't, because they're a single channel. So you go right from having a Shepard Smith, who's actually a fairly reasonable journalist in the way he presented his news Mm -hmm. or even Chris Wallace, right. Into Sean Hannity and people, and that really blurs the line between what's real and what's not. And most people don't understand it. You're absolutely right about it being a literacy problem. And then of course, the other problem for me is it's too easy to never go to see anything that doesn't meet your own beliefs already. Right. We don't we no longer challenge people to challenge their own beliefs. Right. Because it at this point, it's become so contentious. Uh, And I mean, I will be honest. I will be flat out honest. I have tried to keep my circles wide enough to listen and learn from other perspectives. But I Mm -hmm. shut it down this year because it was the contentious became deadly. I get it. (laughs) Uh, no, I totally get it. I, I've I've tried very hard to go out of my way to watch both sides. I will go and put on Fox from time to time. And then I watch, you know, I watch either CNN or MSNBC a lot. Again, I, you know, I, I like listening to Rachel Maddow talk. She's very smart. Um, and so I, I'll do that. But, you know, when it was the conventions, right, the political conventions this year, I put on C-SPAN. 
Yes. Keep because it because it's completely unbiased. There's there, you know, it's like no commentary. Okay, democratic convention starting, click, and then you that's it. And and that's typically what I do. When I want to try to distill the reality, I look for the least biased news source to get it. Or I try to watch both. But but I'm with you. And and the vitriol is so is so high. Do do you think that um, if we had something like the fairness doctrine still in place, it wouldn't be this way? Oh, that's a really good question. I think with the current access to these digital tools that I have started with from the very, very beginning, I don't think it would have stopped that from happening. I do think that may have happened slower. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Because because the a national media outlet has that more of that freedom to continue to or start it and then it spreads or it starts somewhere else and they spread it. It's, you know, I really, uh, I don't think it would have stopped this from happening. How about that? I don't think so. Okay. I, okay. I think that the blur has happened so dramatically at this point that yeah. there's no way to go back to just the simplicity of fairness doctrine. I, I really think it is. It's so funny. I have been talking about the importance of digital literacy since the, you know, since 2005 um, and, and how, as this has changed so rapidly that no one is really pinpointing that as a, as a pain point or a solution. It has to be, it has to be if our country is going to survive whatever we're in right now, if we want to continue to be a free society. Let's move on to something different. Tell me about Born Just Right. So Born Just Right, it started out as a blog. Um, and it's called Born Just Right because my daughter, who's now 14, was born with just a right hand. I didn't, I didn't realize, <laughs> so I didn't realize it was that precise. I, I was following your blog back in the day. but <laughs> Yeah, so we, she's born just right, and she's just born just right-handed. Uh, and back in 2005, as I was emerging in this, these digital spaces uh, as, as a professional, uh, I, when she was born, I suddenly needed these tools to try to, as a journalist, figure out resources that may not exist or did exist across the country to try to make sure that I got the, you know, what she needed physically and mentally. And I just, I was, I didn't even know a child could be born with a, a limb difference in the first place. So I had, I was emerging in these different, different digital tools as a professional. And suddenly I had a very, very personal need for it. And so I started the blog because there weren't resources out there. And as a journalist, I figured, you know what, I'm just going to report out what I'm learning and maybe I'll find a community. And I, I built a community around it. Um, and, and social media tools have come with me along the way. Um, and so throughout the years, we would have meetups with, with readers and we we started working with a prosthetist in Chicago, and I started getting to know the blogging community over there. And I kind of grew as a digital communicator, not just as a professional, but as a personal blogger um, in a space that just had, at the time, there was no one really talking about parenting around disability. I don't, I don't know yeah. if a lot of people were talking about disability. Um, and so I, I've grown and my, my children have grown. I have a, a son who's three and a half years older than, than her as well, that they, they grew up with a mom who 
shared their stories online, (laughs) which there's a lot of controversy around that. So because once again, everything I've tried to do is at the base of it is for good. We have not done the blog thing to get stuff for free, but we built, we've done, we did it to make grew. We did it to grow a community. We did it to meet others and, and really learn and grow. And so with that, outcome. And uh, anytime I would have a family member reach out to me and say, thank you, I don't feel alone anymore. We are all our whole family would go. Yeah, I'm so glad we're doing this. We're so proud to, to have a space to help others. So the the goal of I and I will say this straight out to have that as the goal comes from privilege to have had a job that paid my bills while I could also be a storyteller comes from privilege. And the ability to focus on impact and not income comes from privilege. I feel very blessed that I've been able to ride the yeah. wave of mom blogging and and digital storytelling um, in a way that did not have a core need of income. Um, and so we did very much grow that community through an organic process and not a money process, which is, yeah. I think, very unusual. Um, which I think is why what our work has impacted and what we've been able to do, especially in the last four years, almost five years, comes from a very unusual space of a very unusual process. Um, so because we were within this this sector of disability that is currently, well, at the time was very parent driven. Um, and honestly, a lot of, of disability from one side of things is parent driven and not disability driven. Um, that's where I started in the last four years. My daughter, who's now 14, started to find her voice as a member of dis- of the disability community. And I have helped support that. And I, I've watched what was a blog become a nonprofit. And we've done that together. Um, and it comes from a very strange way. And, and it comes from glitter. Oh yes. <laughs> and and it it happened because because of the blog we were invited to bring Jordan to San Francisco to participate in a one week workshop where kids with upper limb differences had a chance to design based on their physical difference and what could you do if you could build anything on your little arm was pretty much the challenge. And uh there were some special things about that workshop. It was uh, focused on the the child and their own personal experience and learning to design based on themselves. And parents were not allowed in the room. And that that combination led to my daughter designing a prosthetic <laughs> arm that oh. shoots glitter. Yes, I've seen it. <laughs> and <laughs> I have. Yeah, I have been, shot, been with shot, it. shot with it. Um, <laughs> we do use biodegradable glitter. Um, and which cleans off a lot better than the regular stuff I've learned. Um, that experience, because I was also a storyteller, became a viral sensation, not at the hugest level, but it went viral a couple of times. And uh, watching my daughter start to see the response to her experience gave her the chance to speak about being a member of the disability community and to talk about how it's not negative. It is a positive perspective and it also offers design and STEM perspectives that may not be considered 
a good thing. It's yeah. actually a fantastic thing. And it, it offers so much more potential. You bring disability into any genre and you have new perspective. Yeah, what I, and, what I and found fascinating ideas. watching, because I, I kind of been watching from afar, right, is how it's not just about empowerment from what I've seen uh, coming from it, but it's also about, and not only are you empowered to be whatever you want to be, let me show you some of the things you can do. And, and, and Project Unicorn, which is the the limb is all about STEM, right? It's all about how do you design it? How do you build it? How do you make it work? It's all about the engineering side of things. And it's been fascinating to watch and to watch her growth going through that. Yeah. And, and from that experience, um, she had had opportunities to speak uh, at events with the Health and Human Services during uh, Maker Week, uh, National Maker Week uh, in DC. And she really appreciated the opportunities. And I did too. And when November of 2016 happened and she was a ball of goo crying and all she could say is what's going to happen to people who are different. And I, I said to her that night, looked her in the eye and I said, let's use the privilege that we have to help others from the opportunities that have come your way. What's fascinating is that the next in January, the next year she was speaking at NYU. She was doing live interviews on, on, local New York City television. And then she was invited to show off her invention to <laughs> to the shark tank on the Rachel Ray show. And suddenly she had literary agents wanting to help her tell her story in a book. Suddenly she's doing TEDx talks. She's, it just, it grew. And at that exact, when we had made that agreement in November, we started the process of turn, turning the blog into a nonprofit. And so as those moments started to emerge that were very organic and wild to uh, evolutions of, of her wanting to get a different view and conversation around disability, we, we launched a nonprofit so that workshops like where she created Project Unicorn could happen more often. And not only happen for kids with upper limb differences, we started looking for ways to take that workshop and develop ways for kids with physical disabilities to learn to design for themselves and not just upper limb differences and looking for ways to expand opportunity for kids with disabilities. You know, now we have a program director, we have an official workshop, it's called Boost by Born Just Right. Um, Some of our workshop attendees have helped uh, co-found a youth consultancy, a design consultancy, because in the end, we're helping kids with disabilities learn to get paid. Yeah. I want them to get paid. And so the youth design consultancy is a chance for for when, when a, an organization comes to me and says, hey, can you review this concept or can someone speak at our event? I have students who have now evolved with their interests that they want to really they are passionate around the world of disability yeah. design and awareness. And so it's really stunning and fabulous to watch, right? We, they just released a report uh, asking the engineering world to think more about uh, prosthetic design. It's called, I don't need more. I don't, something like, don't give me more <laughs> fingers. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because they don't need fingers. They need uh, tools yeah. that help solve a problem, meet the needs. Um, you know, and in that process, uh, we did release a book called Born Just Right. It's a middle school chapter book. It's written in Jordan's 11-year-old voice. She's 14 now. Um, 
that that we wrote together. It was released last summer, and the this this year the paperback came out. Uh, she was featured in episode one of Marvel's Hero Project. You can see our workshop in motion. We did an event with Microsoft in Cambridge. We she did she got to work on a hackathon, the whole new idea with a hack for good program with Microsoft volunteers this summer. Uh, she consulted with we, not just her. Mostly her, but I, I helped with some language. But she she consulted with Barbie doll designers and helped release a prosthetic leg wearing doll. And the big aha for the designers and the incredible importance that in the end, this is really the the message that she and all of our students are sending is do not create things for communities. Yeah, create them with. And that word with is why that doll has a removable leg. Because if they had not taken the time to talk to Jordan and have her explain the experience of a person with a limb difference, they would have assumed that a person wears a prosthetic leg all the right. time. And that doll different could just color have plastic a on the bottom half leg. of the leg. And that would have been it. You're yes. absolutely right. Yeah. But that's, that's not the reality. The reality is a prosthetic yeah. leg is like a shoe. You wear it when you need it. You're not going to wear it all the time. And that was the such an aha moment in that room. It was so stunning to watch every adult in the room go, oh, That's That's awesome. Oh. That's really cool. <laughs> Jordan's invention and another invention from one of our Boost workshops were on display at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago for a, a, an exhibit called Wire to Wear. Project Unicorn is still there. They have a smaller version of it this yeah. year um, in the museum. Uh, and she helped open that exhibit. Now my goal is, you know, it's hard work. This is this is emotional and physical work to change the needle, and um, and it's a kind of a it's a big reason why I'm trying to launch my own consultancy so that I can give more time to my. Yeah. You know, it's a small nonprofit, uh, and we're we're working to try to make it a well funded nonprofit. And um, Jordan is working. She's a kids ambassador this year. She had a nice. chance to help design a shoe and give input and nice. learn from shoe designers. She's um, next week. You'll hear a campaign that she's working on with another ca- company. Um, I am making sure that she's not just sp- using her energy for free yeah. anymore because this is yeah. hard work. That's it's a, uh, amazing. It's I, I, I was watching you running around all over the world uh, at the end of last year before the, before the pandemic kicked in doing all of these different events. Um, And uh, I was like the amount of energy you guys have just to be able to do that. And still it seems maintain some normalcy of life at the same time. Right. I mean, these Jordan's still a kid who's what just entered high school or in her first year of high school. Right. So all of that still has to happen as well. So it's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. And that's, you know, her, her bandwidth had had started to slow this year anyways. And so that may be the only gift of the pandemic is that she needed to slow down. Yeah. And so she was able to, um, and and focus on just the being 14. (laughs) It's important. It's very important. Um, so, uh, how is the family in general holding up, um, in the midst of all of this? (laughs) Well, Cameron moved to camp- to college in August, and he's here locally. He, he lives in a dorm three miles away. He's extraordinarily isolated. Um, we had hoped that two of his classes out of five would be in person, and at the start of the semester, so none of he's them living are in on person. campus in a dorm, but all of his classes are remote. Right. So we we sent Cameron off to college, put him in a dorm. <laughs> 
and thought that he would have two of his five classes in person so that he'd have a little bit of interaction with his peers. And my hope was that living in a dorm would give him access to a little yeah. bit of college life. Uh, he's gotten very little of that. His his roommate moved out because he was very, very anxious about the viral spread and just needed to go home because he was local as well. My son now lives in his dorm room by himself, which has its yeah. health benefits. We have weekly meetings. His sister and I meet up with him for dinner once a week. We eat outside and we wear we have rules where we mask up around each other, but we hang out at a distance. We have I don't know if you saw the New York Times uh, came up with healthy ways to hug. So we we do COVID hugs where heads are pointed in different directions and he's now much taller than me. So I feel very comfortable with a hug with heads in different directions. So we still, so he's getting his hugs, which I really feel passionate that that's important for him. And he yes. agrees hugs are important. Um, and having a little bit of weekly yeah. human touch point, he just reconnected with some of his elementary school friends who are also going to college with him and they have been doing some distance lunches together. So I, I do think there's a benefit of being a local yeah. at a very large university, but he's, he's, you know, yeah. oh, the things he's missing and to be a kid who grew up in a college yeah. town, he knows I, what he's my missing. My daughter, Allison started college this year at uh, Cal state long beach and she's a musician. She's uh, studying music ed and performance. And so they're all online, uh, and it looks like they're going to be online for the whole year at this point. Again, she missed out that opportunity to be in the dorm and, and to finally get out of her parents' house and have that independence. And she's got the added challenge these days of she can't perform with other musicians in the same room. And that's just absolutely driving her crazy. It, Yeah, yeah it does. It 2020 <laughs> is definitely the one for the books. So what do you think the next six months look like for you? Well, I'm moving into a, a, a communications consultancy zone of life. Uh, I am thrilled to be working with some incredible nonprofits, and I hope that I can continue to focus on the nonprofit, nonprofit and foundation spaces uh, in in the world where so much good is needed. <laughs> um, and communication skills for these organizations, maybe they don't have the funds for a full time person. I'm really hoping I can help support that. I think that six months from now will not be much different um, around our current yeah. physical selves. I think distancing and masking and things like that yeah. are imperative for yeah. us to make any changes. Um, I, I hope that you publish this before the election because I have no idea after that yeah. because I, I have a lot of concerns. Uh, I am once again feeling very privileged to live in a separate house that is not near um, an urban center. Um, I already have a, a vote plan. I I don't know what's to come um, for our country. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know. I, you know, um, <laughs> I'm probably silly, but I still have a core faith in, in this country and in its people. And I think that we figured out what we did wrong and we're going to make a right decision to correct and go forward. I, I try very hard not to get political, Randy, but... Oh, I don't know if there's a... I don't think we can be yeah. apolitical right now. For us 
to forward our society without calling out what is a disaster in our political yeah, sy- yeah, system right now. I agree. It's yeah. it's oh it's definitely it's definitely been interesting times in the true sense of the curse. That's for sure. <laughs> what are you looking forward to the most when things return to whatever the new normal becomes, assuming this isn't it? Uh, yeah, I definitely don't want it, I don't want to go back to what it was. I, I definitely want to see us forwarding society and not re- retreating to the what what it was. Um, I, I am really hopeful that racial equity will become a core to those who care about the furthering of our society, um, that we will base decisions with that in mind, um, we being anybody who cares. <laughs> um, I, I would like to see my children having a chance to interact with new people again. Um, yeah. I, I feel blessed that I have grown up in a digital space in the world where we did get to meet each other organically without suspicion that I have made friends and relationships in person and online in ways that were, I just don't know if we can do that anymore. Maybe we can. Uh, but but I think that there is a going to be a base of suspicion and and lack of trust for a while for us to be a full regular society again. Uh, and that's where I think really thinking about equity and and community, that whole reason that Born Just Right is doing what it's doing is that focus on with. With is something I try to think about all the time. Who do I need to work with? Who do I need to think about so that they are with this message or with this outcome? Um, who is being left without or is is maybe not thought about yet or needs to be thought about? I'm, I'm trying really hard to be thoughtful. I hope I can continue to be thoughtful yeah. and still pay the bills. Yeah. But in the meantime, while I have this privilege, I, I do want to hopefully forward the world where we are thinking about working with, not against, and improve so many things that are a real big Very mess cool. right now. Good message. Okay. I want to try to help you pay your bills. What's your consultancy website? Here's the <laughs> it's it's it is just right strategy.com. And uh, I'm I'm Jen Lee Reeves everywhere on the internet. So that's J-E-N-L-E-E-R-E-E-V-E-S, all the E's. I, I'm definitely on the internet in a lot of ways. I do believe that there is good in these spaces and I have used those good things for a long, long time. And I'm still working to help organizations power through this negative time to do good with the tools and communications that we can use. And it's still possible, but we just need to really up our literacy and and use yep. these tools for good. And that's where I'm at. Awesome. Jen, thank you for taking the time out to of talk course. to me. 